crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Nachtigal. I'm here in Jerusalem, Israel, and today is the final day of Purim. This is a festival of remembrance of the Jewish people where they celebrate and look back to a time 2,500 years ago where God delivered, God delivered the Jewish people from genocide. Attempted genocide on the Jewish people is not something new. They've lived with this for thousands of years. Um, but this was one of the first attempts. This was one of the first attempts back 2,500 years ago where the Persian Empire, or at least an individual that held the power of the Persian Empire for, for a moment, it seems, Haman, uh, in the Esther uh, history, sought to and got approval of Xerxes the king to wipe out the Jews everywhere throughout the empire. And they needed an amazing miracle. Persian decrees, as we know from history and archaeology, they cannot be retracted. And so how was God going to provide a solution for the Jewish people to continue? That was God's will, that they would continue. And the reason I want to go into this story today, well, I'm not going to really talk too much about the story itself, but I am going to talk about the modern attempt of the modern Persian Empire, kingdom, you could put it that way. It is a kingdom. Uh, the Bible calls it a kingdom. Uh, to destroy the Jewish state today. It is in motion. And the scary fact right now is that while Iran might not be a superpower, the final remaining superpower on this earth, the United States of America, is lining up to support the Iranians. Now, this might seem like kind of far-fetched or, let's say, years down the road. However, we just have to look at the events over the last week to see how uh, supportive the United States Biden administration, the third term of the, of the Obamas, uh, is to support the Iranian action, Iranian takeover of the Middle East. And if, the, if they're going to support Iran, it makes sense then, that they're going to downgrade ties with the traditional allies of the United States. Now, this does not make sense. It does not make sense if you want to preserve power of the United States. This does not make sense if you want to preserve the uh, strength of your allies, the allies that do support st more stability in the world, that don't support terrorism, and the allies that share fundamental values with your state. That's what the Jewish state does with the United States. They share fundamental values. And so why is it then that the United States right now wants to raise up in power the very regime that would seek to destroy Israel? This is a paradox for many. But this is... Uh, something that the Bible actually reveals. The Bible reveals the motivation behind the Biden administration. It also shows you how much Iran is going to be able to, um, or how far Iran will be able to go 
in its conquest for the Middle East. A lot of this is revealed in the Bible, in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel comes just before, 80 years or so before uh, the book of Book of Esther, when Purim took place. But Daniel, and particularly Daniel chapter 11, talk a lot about what the modern Iranian kingdom is doing and how far it'll go and where it will lead. And there is a positive, there is a definite positive um, event at the end of all of this. However, if you're worried about the direction of the United States and its support for Iran, particularly during this time of Purim, those worries are definitely founded in fact. That is not unfounded. As much as the media would like you to have have you believe that the Biden administration is going to be different from the Obama administration, as much as Israeli media would like you to believe that as well, there was just an article that came out over the weekend um, which which talked about how Israel is very pleased with the U.S. strikes in Syria. And this, of course, relates to Biden's strike of a dusty outpost where sometimes some uh, Iranian-backed fighters travel between Iraq and Syria to in retaliation of an Iranian-backed strike against American forces at an international airport in Iraq. And apparently there's some Israeli officials that said that Biden is not Obama. I mean, they're unnamed in this article. Uh, I'd like to know who they are. I don't think that there's too many Israeli officials that are smart, uh, smart ones that think that Biden is not Obama in terms of foreign policy. And so there is plenty of reasons to be worried and plenty of reasons during this celebration, celebratory time of Purim, that you should consider what is going on with the modern Persian kingdom as it gets support from the great superpower of the United States? Before we just go over some of the details of events of the past week, particularly using an article by Carolyn Glick that she released yesterday, what I do want to do is play for you part of a key of David about the book of Esther. This is from the Watch Jerusalem editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry. He posted this about three weeks ago. Uh, on YouTube, and it played throughout the United States and all around the world. And I just want to pick out a little bit of the Book of Esther, um, because Mr. Flurry talks about this this threat of the Iranians in this context as well. Here's Mr. Gerald Flurry, the Key of David, from three weeks ago. Iran often speaks of wiping Israel off the map, and this is uh, something that is repeated often in the Middle East. Bibi Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel came to America and and he spoke about something that I think Congress was not expecting. He talked quite a bit about the book of Esther in the Bible, the book that uh, a lot of people don't know very much about. But he also talked about the survival of his people, Israel. Now, today we see Israel they're very close to Iran, and, and they see that they're continuing to develop their nuclear power, and they are very, the Iran is very close to getting the nuclear bomb. And so he wanted to talk about the survival of his people, and he was concerned about whether or not his people could survive, which is really a problem in the entire world, but it's more of a problem in a way for Israel. Now, Iran also threatens the U.S. with uh, destruction. They talk often about uh, death to America. 
But I want to read to you what Prime Minister Netanyahu said about Esther in the, the book of Esther. He said, My friends, I've come here today because, as Prime Minister of Israel, I feel a profound obligation to speak to you about an issue that could well threaten the survival of my country and the future of my people. Iran's quest for nuclear weapons, that was his concern. We're an ancient people. In our nearly 4,000 years of history, many have tried repeatedly to destroy the Jewish people. Tomorrow night, on the Jewish holiday of Purim, we'll read the book of Esther. We'll read of a powerful Persian viceroy named Haman, who plotted to destroy the Jewish people some 2,500 years ago. But a courageous Jewish woman, Queen Esther, exposed the plot and gave for the Jewish people the right to defend themselves against their enemies. The plot was foiled, and people were saved. Now, what does that have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? There's a lot more here than just some a message about Esther. It has everything to do with continuing God's plan on this earth. And that means it actually brings you and me into the picture in this end time. It is tied to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and just before that second coming. So Queen Esther certainly showed them how to solve their problems, and the way she took this to God, and she fasted about it, and she asked that the other Jews all fasted about it for three days and uh, make sure they were getting close to God. That's what fasting is for, is to bring us close to God. And so uh, she and, and her uh, group of ladies helping her also fasted and took this to God. And here's what uh, Ernest Martin wrote about this, and you'll see that uh, this is, has to, more to do with our time than it does with Esther's time. And that's why this is so important to all of us right now. Dr. Ernest Martin had this to say about the book of Esther. He said, Why was the king of Persia so interested in the Jews' religion? And why did he want Jerusalem to be rebuilt and inhabited? The answer is plain. The Bible records how Esther, a Jewish girl, became the queen of Persia, and Mordecai, her older cousin really, became prime minister of the kingdom, and Esther was married to King Xerxes. That's a man who ruled the whole world at the time. She was married to him, and his name in the Bible is Ahasuerus. It's mentioned here that according to Persia Reckoning from 485 to 465 B.C., that all of that happened, so Esther was used to continue God's work and God's plan. I'll show you as we go along. Now, there was a, a very evil man by the name of Haman. He was the king's prime minister. He was really the number two power in that nation that ruled the world. He uh, was going to destroy the entire Jewish race. And, of course, that concerned Mordecai, who was a Jew, and Esther very much. And they wondered how they could deal with this problem. So somebody was going to have to get the truth to King Xerxes. 
Somebody was going to have to do that if they were going to be able to save the Jewish people in the Persian Empire at that time. Notice what it says in Esther 4 and verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. Again, Esther spoke unto Hatach, and gave him commandment unto Mordecai, and all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. So that's what Esther was saying. How can I do that? In verse 12, And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. In other words, you have to realize that you're going to be killed too. They're going to kill all the Jews. And that included this Jewish queen. So, verse 14, For if you altogether hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement, or just distress and anxiety, and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, here's a, a very righteous man, Mordecai, saying, Well, uh, Esther, who, who knows whether you are come in the kingdom to right now to help us save the Jews? Now, he just told her, Look, uh, certainly it was a situation where she was going to be killed, just like everybody else. Then he asked her a hard question, Well, who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, uh, who knows, but maybe what God sent you here is for this very purpose. And that uh, was a hard, hard question for her to answer. Now, she uh, certainly had uh, been, uh, well, really, reared mostly by Mordecai, and so they were very close. But here, here again, you see that God does use individuals, and sometimes they don't want to do what God wants them to do. They don't want to, want to do it, but it does say that God calls people out of this world and gives them some pretty impressive jobs if they will do them. But it also says many are called, but few are chosen. Few are chosen. Well, Esther was chosen. It's pretty obvious. by just reading on in this book that she was. So you, you uh, have to understand human nature because many of the prophets and many of the people called by God to use in very uh, serious situations and very dramatic uh, events. And uh, so many of them would say, well, who, who am I to be doing this? Jeremiah said, Why, well, I'm just a child. He was probably about 17. He was a teenager. And God says, Well, don't, don't tell me that. This is a job I want you to do. And he had had the Spirit of God from the, his birth, one of the few, one of the three people that had in the, uh, that it talks about in the Bible. And so most people would say, Well, how could God want me? 
why, why would God want me to do this? I'm not qualified to do what God wants me to do, and that is what many people say. And simply, they, that's why many are called and few are chosen. So we have to keep that in mind. Notice verse 15, Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer, Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast you for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. So there was a long fast. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. What a courageous woman, willing to die for her people. How many people on this earth today, how many people in this nation or other nations are willing to die for their people, willing to give their lives for their own family? Of course, the whole human family is one. We just don't know that, but we're going to learn it very soon. We're all here because we came from Adam and Eve, and that doesn't uh, usually get too well uh, accepted in the uh, scholarly world. But how many people do you know in, would, today would do such a thing as that? Many of our forefathers died spilled their blood so that we might have freedom today, freedom to speak, freedom to talk about what I'm talking about. What person would stand up like this lady, this queen, this beautiful queen, and say, okay, the king has to get this message, and if he kills me, he kills me, but I'm going to get this message to him if I can. And so she set out to do that. But how about you and how about me? <laughs> Are we willing to take a stand and maybe even die for our own people? That is something that God even says when He calls us that something like that could happen. He said you have to even give up your family and perhaps even your own life. If, you want, if you're willing to do God's work, and get His message out to this world, which is always just routinely rejected, and not often has mankind heard the message and heeded what it said. So all this, though, is tied to the end time. So this is an amazing history of how Esther and Mordecai were used by God to preserve the Jewish people. And as Mr. Flurry says, um, we are living in this type of time as well, right now, with the rise of the Iranian kingdom and being supported, although we didn't get into it in that uh, key of David, supported by the United States of America. Now, there's a number of articles here. I'm not going to go through through all of them, but I do think it's interesting that you have this play right now by the Biden administration is being supported by the mainstream media that Biden isn't interested in the Middle East at all, and that uh, it's not one of his high priorities, and that's why he didn't call Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu until almost four weeks. That's why he didn't call um, Ben Salman, uh, well, at least they didn't call the king, I think, of Saudi Arabia, and so on. 
where if you look at the actual policy moves of the Obama administration, you can clearly see that that's not true. Although you are going to see lots of reporting that that is the case, that Biden is just more interested in uh, the Asia Pacific, then Europe, then the Western Hemisphere. That's what one of his close advisors said. If you're going to if you're going to list the regions Biden sees as, as a priority, the Middle East is not in the top three, and that's just a lie. That's a lie, and that's something to expect uh, from the Biden administration. Lies about what they are doing in the Middle East to raise up Iran. Now, this is an article by Russell Berman. This was February 22nd in the National Interest. Why is American foreign policy tilting towards Iran? So this kind of details the first the events of the first couple of weeks of the Biden administration in the, in the, uh, the, the introduction here. And then I'm going to go to the conclusion, and then we'll get to the, the issues of the past week. During the past weeks, the contours of the new administration's Middle East policy have become clear. Speaking at the Department of State, President Joe Biden stated that the U.S. will limit military assistance to Saudi Arabia and cease supporting Riyadh's efforts against the Houthis. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Blinken retracted the Trump administration's effort to initiate snapback measures against Iran, effectively conceding Iran's right to import weaponry. That's a one-two punch, reducing support for the Saudis and clearing the way for Iran's military buildup. So notice that right now. Iran, by virtue of the the JCPOA or the nuclear deal that was enacted or at least guaranteed by UN Security Council resolutions, one of those says that there is a sunset clause of five years that after which Iran is able to buy conventional weapons from anybody. And this wasn't the case. They were not allowed to do this. Well, now that Biden's back on, or at least saying those snapback uh, sanctions aren't on, That means Iran has access to whatever China makes, whatever Russia makes, potentially whatever the United States makes. But in terms of Saudi Arabia, we are not supporting your war in Yemen against the Houthis, who are an Iranian-backed group who have taken over most of the important parts of Yemen already. And we're going to take away the weapons deals that we had with you as well. And in fact, the Houthis, who Trump said were a terrorist organization, they're not terrorists at all. That's what Biden, the Biden administration did in the first few weeks or first week or so of being in office. Meanwhile, as Washington, continuing from Berman here, as meanwhile, as Washington made these gestures of appeasement, Tehran had its proxies in Yemen, Iraq and Lebanon continue their assaults on American assets or partners, including the February 15th rocket attack on Erbil with American casualties. As Iran ratchets up, ratchets up the violence, U.S. leadership makes unconditional concessions. American policymakers are living in a parallel universe, oblivious to the wars on the ground, is what Berman writes. Or at least he assumes that they're oblivious to the wars on the ground. Or they don't know what they're doing. Now, this is it's really interesting to consider the way that smart people looked at the Obama administration's policy in the Middle East and what Biden is doing right now. There are plenty of conservative commentators that would see what Obama what did and what Biden is doing and notice that's very similar. It's the same policy. It's rise up Iran and traditional allies down. That is what they see. But why is they why why did Biden is Biden doing it and why did Obama do it? 
And nobody really has a good answer. The Bible has a good answer. We tell you in our articles why exactly the Biden administration and Obama before him were going after the Jewish state by increasing pressure or by increasing support of the Iranians. We told you why. We tell you why. But for a lot of smart people that look that that think in terms of realism and and self-interest, it doesn't make sense for the United States administration that cares for its own safety to then support and encourage and fund the fanatical Iranian regime that says death to America. That does not make sense. So maybe they're just ignorant. Maybe they're just trying something new to, to normalize Iran, to bring it into the community of nations, when that's not true. They, they know all those arguments. The, the Obama administration and Biden administration, they're not interested in normalizing Iran. They're interested in providing support for Iran, what Iran wants to do. This is the conclusion of the Berman piece, and then later we're going to get into a Carolyn Glick piece. Given the ongoing violence in the region, the wars in Yemen and Syria, so these are two places that Iran has supported and is supporting, the rockets hitting targets in Saudi Arabia, and given the violence across both Iraq and Lebanon, uh, these may seem may seem to be pale in insignificance. They, are, uh, or just continue on. However, they are also symptomatic. The, all these moves of a tendency in parts of Congress and in the administration to tilt toward Iran and its proxies and away from traditional partners, both Saudi Arabia and Turkey. According to this view, the major problems in the region are American presence and the character of U.S. partners and allies. The implication of this vision is for the United States to acquiesce to Iran's campaign for regional hegemony. So the Biden administration and Obama, they actually believe the same thing Iran believes, that Iran, that the United States' presence in the region and the allies that think like the United States has, they are the problems, not the Iranian not the Iranians, and an open question remains as to the source of this infatuation with Iran. Despite its 40 years of fever-pitched anti-Americanism, that has never shown any sign of abating. The answer may have to do with some ideological affinity. The revolutionary character of the Islamic Republic may appeal to parts of the liberal democratic spectrum. Skipping a paragraph, or skipping a clause. Yet more importantly... Iran's anti-Americanism evidently confirms progressives' America-centric worldview that treats the United States as the primary cause of strife everywhere. It is an American first thinking with a negative sign. American, America is the worst, not the best. The hate-filled slogans from Tehran resonate with the internalized anti-imperialism of American progressives who prefer to embrace America's enemies instead of supporting its friends. So it's not outlandish to come along and say that the United States ideologically now, the government, supports Iran's ideology. They agree America is the worst. And considering Israel gets support from America, a lot of support has done, and that, that Israel shares fundamental values with the United States. It makes sense then that, that the America and the Biden administration would view Israel the same way. Now, we have gone into why the real deeper reasons as to why um, 
uh, why there is a hatred for the Jewish people among the Obama presidency and in inside the Biden presidency as well. And it is very much motivated by the same the same thing that Haman was motivated by. It's very much motivated in the same way that Hitler was motivated. It's very much motivated in the same way that Antiochus Epiphanes during the time of the Maccabees was motivated. Now these are repetitive cycles in history where individuals individuals use the power of state to try and commit genocide on the Jewish people. And President Obama came into power and he said that he wanted to fundamentally transform the United States and plenty of people asked, well, why does it need to be fundamentally transformed? Well, he disagrees. He disagrees with the foundational documents of the United States. He disagrees with the biblical values in which the United States was built. And it follows then that President Obama seeks to fundamentally transform America's relationship with the world. And he did it in his first term, particularly in the United States, uh, in the Middle East. And he's doing it again through the vice president, now President Biden, and this administration, particularly continuing his policy of being pro-Iran. Now, <clears throat> um, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a bold and uh, bold statement to come out and say that President Obama is motivated in the same way that Antiochus Epiphanes was, um, or that Haman was. But given the historical cycles, uh, why should it be such a strange occurrence? Why should it be such? We have to look at fruits. We look at facts. Why do you uh, empower the number one state sponsor of terrorism, whose sworn goal is to destroy the Jewish state, unless you shared ideology with them. This is what Carolyn Glick writes in her piece, February 27th, the Khashoggi Passion Play. This refers to the, uh, the journalist that was murdered uh, inside uh, the Saudi embassy in Turkey a couple of years ago. And I'll just let her explain who he was because it's she does a very good job at it. And she probably sees, along with Lee Smith, who she quotes in here, um, and Berman, I think, is getting at it as well, uh, the shift or the let's say some of the motivations or the the how dark and how sinister some of the motivations and some of the plans are of the Biden administration and the Obama administration before. There's not too many people that are willing to admit that in our 21st century that you could have leaders that rise up that would want to put to death the Jewish people. And yet we have to look at the fruits. She writes this, The Biden administration's decision to publish the Intel report on Jamal Khashoggi's death in late 2018, was as predictable as it was destructive to the U.S. national security and to the security and stability of the Middle East. So this is referring to what took place, I think, yesterday or two days ago. Um, it, he, was, he was killed in 2018, but that Biden wanted to release this report to blame the Saudis for it. Well, why? We already knew the Saudis were at fault for it. Trump had already sanctioned a number of individuals for it. We knew this was the case. Um, however... Biden wanted to jump on board with more of these anti-Saudi actions. It was predictable for two reasons. First, this is Obama's third term. 
<laughs> she just comes out and says it. I mean, we've said it as well. She wrote, I think, a piece of two weeks ago about this being Obama's third term. People might laugh that off. Look at the fruits, though. Look at the fruits. Israeli officials, no name of Israeli officials might say that Biden's not Obama. Look at the fruits. And in Obama's first term, Glick continues, he played a central role in overthrowing Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak, the anchor of the U.S. alliance system in the Sunni Arab world, in favor of the Muslim Brotherhood, the ideological anchor of every Sunni terrorist group in the world. Obama's consistent policy for eight years was to side with the jihadists. That's true. Mubarak, you're a strong man. You're a dictator. We don't like the way that you rule. Get out. Have some democracy there in Egypt. Well, democracy takes place in Egypt. It's going to be the same result that if it takes place in Saudi Arabia, if it takes place in Syria, and elsewhere. You're going to see Muslim Brotherhood, Sunni jihadists rise to the forefront because they are popular with the people. It's only the strength of the monarchies or a strongman rule that is going to uh, preserve the state. But that's not what Obama wanted. He, he knew that. He knew that democracy would lead to, uh, lead to uh, Muslim Brotherhood rule in democratic elections in Egypt, and that's what took place. Obama's anti-colonialist worldview world bred his anti-Western sensibilities. He and his neo-Marxist advisors viewed the jihadists as the authentic voice for the Islamic world. They were favored because they were revolutionary and anti-Western. In every conflict that pitted either conservative Sunni leaders, Iranian anti-regime forces, or Israel against the jihadists from Hamas to Hezbollah to the Muslim Brotherhood to the Houthis or Iran, Obama and his people supported the jihadists. They did. They do. For this reason, Obama admired both Turkish dictator Erdogan and Qatari ruling family and the Qatari ruling family like him. Qatar, of course, even though they're on the Gulf, even though they're Sunni, uh, they support the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and the Qatari ruling family. Like him, they support a jihadist. MBS, so that's Mohammed bin Salman, and MBZ, Mohammed bin Zal- Zalman, Zam- uh, sorry, that's the ruler of the UAE, can't remember his name uh, fully, sorry, from the UAE were big problems for Obama. Robert Malley and their ilk. They appeared out of nowhere talking about how these rulers of the Gulf state monarchies, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, strong anti-Islamic, uh, uh, Islamists, let's put it that way, anti-fundamentalist, these pro-monarchy, oh, these monarchist leaders. Um, she continues to write, they are deeply opposed to Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood. They are open to peace and cooperation with Israel. They support Israel and its campaigns against Hamas and Hezbollah, and they are certainly authentic Arab nations. When the UAE declared, UAE declared the Muslim Brotherhood and Obama's key supporters, supporters and the ideological allies of the CAIR terrorist organizations, Obama and his comrades were so angry that they could barely put together a coherent sentence. When the UAE came out and said Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood, terrorist organization, uh, they did not like that. This was going against their worldview. How dare the UAE stand up to Obama like that? This brings us to to Khashoggi. As Lee Smith reported after he was found dead in the Saudi consulate in Turkey, there were a lot of things about Khashoggi's 
Khashoggi that made him a strange hero for American a- of Americans of any stripes. He was a Qatari agent of influence. He was a former Saudi intelligence officer, intelligence officer who sided with the Wahhabist jihadists in the royal family who supported Al-Qaeda. He was friends with Osama bin Laden and mourned his death. The Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Iran, and Hamas supporting Qatari regime was essentially writing his columns in the Washington Post. Khashoggi's receipt of a green card made no sense. His gig as a columnist at Jeff Bezos' paper made no sense unless seen as an effort of Obama's deep state friends, particularly former CIA director John Brennan, who studied in Egypt, probably alongside the Muslim Brotherhood, who was opposed from who who opposed MBS or the leader of Saudi Arabia from the outset, at least the Crown Prince, uh, the mover and shaker that wants to modernize that society. And then it made perfect sense. In other words, Khashoggi, a terrorist supporting Qatari agent against a modernizing pro-American anti-jihadist and pro-Israeli Saudi crown prince, was an important political warfare asset for the Obama clique. His job was to discredit MBS, legitimize the terror-supporting Qataris, while making pro-jihadist progressives feel good about themselves. He was an agent. He was an agent for the Muslim Brotherhood, the Qataris, and Obama liked that. And so how dare the Saudis put him to death? Now, as she says, the murder isn't justified. She's not justifying murder. All she's saying is, I'm saying he doesn't deserve the tears of anyone that opposes jihadist terror or jihadist regimes, cares about human rights, or wants to avoid a major war in the Middle East. So she's just showing the two sides here. You have whether there it's Iran, who is Shiite, but yet fanatical, or the Sunnis, uh, which some of the Gulf monarchies, or the Gulf monarchies, they are Sunni also, but they don't believe that, or they don't fund terrorist proxies, now at least, that want to take over the Middle East. They want to hold them back. And she's saying Obama doesn't like that. They immediately set out lionizing Uh, Khashoggi is some sort of Nelson Mandela so that they could turn MBS into Hitler or whatever. As Smith reported in another article, Robert Malley, who is now in charge of Biden's Iran policy, this man, Robert Malley, in charge of uh, uh, Biden's Iran policy, was the first pushing the line that in response to Khashoggi's death, the US should end its support or alliance with Saudi Arabia in retribution and side with the Iranian-controlled Houthis against Saudi Arabia. And that's what's happened. That's what's happened now that Biden's taken uh, control. And it's just two more paragraphs here from Carolyn Glick. The worst thing that happened to the Obama knee Biden crowd were the Abraham Accords. This is why the first thing that Biden and his handlers did was bow out of the U.S. side of the deal by freezing the arms sales to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. The Abraham Accords put Put paid their false, or uh, laid their false claims that the jihadists are an authentic Arab, authentic voice in the Arab world. The popularity of the deals among the citizens of the Gulf and much of the wider Arab world, like Morocco and Sudan, made clear that Obama, Biden, and their ilk were basing U.S. Middle East policy on the propaganda being taught in Middle East studies departments throughout the United States rather than on anything even vaguely resembling the reality of the region and the views of the people who actually live there. Now, again, she doesn't see 
I mean, she does see what Biden, uh, what Obama and Biden and, and their, the fruit, let's say the end result of their actions would be. But we are impugning motive here, and we're probably alone in that. I don't know if MBS will survive this blow or not. There is a reason to fear that at the end of the day, the leaders of the UAE and Saudi Arabia will decide they are better off making an arrangement with Iran, supported by the U.S., than standing up for their sovereignty and their interests with Israel. But if they do, it will be a disaster of epic proportions. The danger of war will rise exponentially. Jihadists of the Sunni and Shiite varieties will be empowered as never before. And Israel will be in a pretty horrible uh, situation. But in the midst of all this, leave it to the fake human rights activists and real terror supporters and jihadi sympathizers like Mali and his comrades in Obama's new administration to pat themselves on the back for ushering in an authentic era in the Middle East. Now, I've kind of quoted all of that, uh, and I'll definitely leave a link to all these articles in the show notes. But what's important to make note of there is that she's unaware. She doesn't know what is Saudi Arabia going to do right now? Are they going to decide that, well, America's pretty strong, um, so maybe I just we just have to kind of play along for a bit, support what they're doing with the Iranians for a bit, um, and not make too much noise? And will uh, other Sunni powers come under the wing of Iran or come under the, this alliance of Iran and the United States? That's what it is. It's an alliance of Iran and the United States. Still got plenty of Americans that don't like the Iranian regime. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying where the power hole, where the power is being held right now. Is that going to happen? Now, what I find tremendously enlightening and, and hope filled is that the Bible has answers for these questions. The Bible tells us who is going to be allied with the United States and uh, Iran in this. And how far this actually goes before Donald Trump comes back, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. However, the Saudis are probably wondering if Trump's going to come back. And so they're kind of looking at their response to this American regime uh, right now, whether they're going to support Biden and Obama and what they're doing in the region, or whether they're going to lay low, or whether they're going to stand up to Biden uh, and get more on board with Israel and the UAE and perhaps Europe as well. So we'll see. But the Bible does tell us who is going to be allied with the Iranians in this kingdom. And this booklet, The King of the South, it's written by Mr. Gerald Flurry, who is the editor of Watch Jerusalem. And it goes into detail and about a prophecy that's found in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40 to verse 45. And this is a really critical, uh, critical chapter. Uh, it's critical for a number of reasons, because if you look look into the first part of the chapter, it starts off talking about the ancient king of the south and king of the north. Now, these anciently were, uh, the king of the south anciently is the Ptolemaic Empire that sprang forth out of Alexander the Great's empire after that divided, uh, and that was based out of Egypt. And the king of the north was, was the Seleucid Empire, which was ruled over from Syria, but also incorporated everywhere, everything going over towards uh, Babylon, over into uh, Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And that was ruled from Antioch. And Antiochus Epiphanes is 
who was Antiochus IV, is probably the most famous of the rulers of that Seleucid Empire. And Daniel chapter 11 actually talks about what Antiochus Epiphanes would do and how he would rise up to destroy the Jewish people and make an attempt at doing that, but for the strength of a few that would rise up and say no. A few being led by the Maccabees, the Hasmonean leaders, um, that you're familiar with most of that history, I'm sure. But let's go to, and that's, that's the whole prophecy. It kind of goes from Alexander's death, around 320 or such, and it continues, and it goes up till the Maccabean revolt and the cleansing. Um, and then it stops and it jumps. It jumps in history. Uh, and we know it jumps about 2,000 years. It says this in verse 40, And at the time of the end, so our time today, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen with many ships, and he shall enter in, into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. And so you've got two kings here, and Mr. Flurry brings us out in this booklet, and you can prove that Iran is the king of the south just by what he's stated here 30 years ago and what has happened forecasting Iraq's fall to Iran before Saddam Hussein was was when Saddam Hussein was the upper had the upper hand there forecasting a Muslim brotherhood takeover of Egypt which has happened once and will happen again and they're going to align with Iran all that was was written here before it happened uh prophesying that Libya was going to was going was going to fall in line with Iran now that is coming there's a lot more that Mr. Flurry is based off from this scripture, these scriptures right here. So you've got the king of the south, which this, this passage brings out those nations that are going to be allied with Iran, who is the king of the king of the south, radical Islam led by Iran. Uh, and then the king of the north is not the Seleucid Empire anymore. That is the natural, uh, uh, let's say, that took the power that took over uh, the Seleucid Empire eventually was going to be the Romans. The Roman Empire's Pompey. Pompey the general took it over around 63, uh, I think it was about 63, 64 BCE. And then that would be absorbed into the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is the last world ruling empire that the Bible really uh, prophesies about through the book of Daniel. And so this king of the north is going to be a resurgent uh, Europe led by Germany. And this this is going to take place. And it's going to take place in lightning fashion. And it's going to do have something to do with the Middle East as well, especially as Europe wakes up to the fact that they are on the receiving end of a lot of what Iran is planning. If you look at their their latest uh, satellite launch um, of a satellite into space, the, the amount of thrust that was generated by that rocket launch three weeks ago, I think it was, if it was put in more of a conventional means into a weapon or nuclear warhead, that hits everything all the way up into, into uh, the UK even. And it's often been said, if if Iran wanted to hit Israel with a nuclear weapon, they could with the technology that they already have. The ballistic missile training that they're and their the development of their ballistic missiles isn't to hit Israel; it's to hit Europe. And Europe eventually is going to wake up to that. And that's why it says here that you've got to have this king of the south, a radical Islamic empire led by Iran, that's going to push at the king of the north, which is Europe, and he shall enter into the glorious land that is the king of the north is German-led Europe, and many countries shall be overthrown. These shall escape out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. So they are actually going to be allied uh, with the king of the north, with, Germ- with, uh, <clears throat> with German-led Europe. These include Turkey. This includes Jordan. 
and in Bible, other Bible passages bring out that it will include the Saudis as well. It will probably include the UAE also. They're going to be allied with Europe, and that makes sense. They're already, a lot of these nations, are against Iran. And he shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Why is this king of the north from Europe coming down to battle against Iran and is going to make sure Egypt doesn't escape? Well, this is because Egypt is also in league with Iran. And based on this prophecy, we can forecast, Mr. Flurry has, a Sunni Islamic takeover of Egypt. Again, it happened once back in 2012. And then he was removed. Morsi was removed. The Muslim Brotherhood leader was removed. The Bible indicates it's going to happen again. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Again, he's going to take out the king of the north is going to be worried about what's happening in Libya and Ethiopia. Now, what's really interesting about this is if you look at Libya and you look at where Ethiopia is on a map, you have Egypt smack dab in between them. And you also have Sudan now. And then you have Eritrea and Djibouti uh, further to the south. And so what this is saying, and as Mr. Flurry brings out in this book, is that you have this larger strategy of Iran that is played out here based on the knowledge of which uh, places and countries this European army conquers. This European army is not going to conquer an ally. It's conquering adversaries. The adversaries are aligned with Iran. And so Iran, based on this prophecy, is going to get control over the eastern seaboard of the Red Sea. So these nations from Ethiopia going up northwards, and that's why this this whole um, civil war taking place in Ethiopia right now, in, in t- the Tigray region in the north, which borders Eritrea, which borders the Red Sea, is very important, which is really interesting if you look at what Sudan is doing right now in, in terms of fighting against the Ethiopian government. This whole region is becoming destabilized. And what's also important before we get lost in too many geopolitical details, is what's happening on the other side of the Red Sea. That is Yemen. That is where the Houthis are. That is where the United States right now is backing regime change in Yemen, in support of the Houthis. They won't say that, but that fundamentally is what they're doing just over the weekend, last few hours even. We've had sirens go off in Riyadh. Because the Iranians-backed Houthis have been firing missiles at Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, We've, since the Houthis were uh, delisted as being a, a terrorist organization, they've mobilized for the greatest military offensive that they have in the past five years. What are they doing? They're taking over um, the last governorate that they don't hold in the north, sending millions, well, up to a million, refugees somewhere else in Yemen. These are the fruits of United States policy. By withdrawing support for Saudi Arabia, they are allowing Iran to take over Yemen. Then what happens after Iran becomes the gatekeeper, the Sultan of the Red Sea, as they've called themselves? It's not far across the waters to Eritrea, then to Sudan, and then to Egypt. The Bible says it's Iran's strategy to take hold of those geostrategic areas. The Bible says they will, that, that will happen. But the Bible also indicates, for Carolyn Glick's sake, that the Saudis will not go all in and, and support the Iranians, and they will not uh, support what the United States is doing. 
and they will probably just try and hold out as long as they can and waiting for Europe, who is prophesied to be their, um, their ally, their strong ally, to come to their aid. Now, these are trying times, especially if you're looking into uh, history and you know what's possible with the Iranian regime. And if you're facing a moral quandary of why in the world the United States would support the greatest anti-Semitic nation on the country on the face of the earth, then you need to read your Bible and you also need to read this book, The King of the South. It'll make it clear to you what is happening and it will give you some hope. Look at the end of this uh, end of this chapter. It says that uh, verse chapter 12 and verse one, at the time of the end, Michael shall stand up the great prince, which stands up for the children of, of, of your people and there shall be time of trouble. So there is going to be a time of trouble that is coming. But if you look through all of this chapter and towards the end, you know that you get to these periods where they're counting days of how long it's going to be. And this is talking about the days until the coming of the Messiah. And so we know that this Iranian, uh, this strengthening of Iran's position in the Middle East so it can fulfill these prophecies of the king of the, king of the South is actually leading to a countdown to the coming of the Messiah. That's what the Bible says. Uh, that's what the King of the South lays out for you. So you don't have to be caught by surprise. Now, there's obviously, um, this isn't a time to, uh, we definitely don't condone or, or we're not supportive of massive military strikes in the Middle East against the Iranians. I mean, if you're looking, trying to solve this humanly, that's probably a good idea to carry the big stick and not to give proportional response to any type of attack, but overwhelming response to any attack, uh, that might contain things for a while, and that might happen a little bit if Trump comes back into, uh, when he comes back into office. Um, however, there is a lot there in the end of, of the book of Daniel that talks about what individuals can do. Seeing how these prophecies are playing out should turn people to God. Being worried about the future of the Jewish state should turn people to God. Being worried about the survival of the Jewish people as the superpower supports the Islamic regime should turn people to God in fasting, as it did Esther, as it did those in Shushan and Susa, as it did Mordecai. That was their response to the ancient Persian Empire and their attempt to commit uh, genocide on the Jewish people. What will be the response of the nation of Israel? What will be the response of individuals? Now, individually, it God offers protection for those individuals that would that would go through and, and have a change of heart just like Esther did. She needed her heart changed, and she did change it by the counsel of Mordecai. And there is hope and a bright future for those individuals that would do that, but for even those that wouldn't. I mean, seeing Iran's rise... It does forebode difficult times ahead, but it also does show us that we are on the countdown to the Messiah's coming. And when he comes, that's the end of war. That's the end of kings of the south, kings of the north, kings of the east, as it brings out here. That's done. Humans ruling over humans, we've learned it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And God is going to uh, ensure that godly rule takes place on this earth. Uh, led by the Messiah.
please do request this book. It's called The King of the South. This is written by Mr. Gerald Flurry. It's free. Wherever you are in the world, we will send it to you. Again, if you're worried at the American course right now in support of the jihadis, in support of the Islamic regime in Iran, then you need to read this book. It spells out biblical prophecy and what is going to take place here in the lead-up to the coming of the Messiah. Thank you very much for listening today to the program. If you'd like to send me some feedback, please go ahead and write emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il.